Good morning again. If you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. And we will be uh, starting in verse 9 in our study today and going through the end of the chapter. Uh, now I want to warn you before uh, we get going, there is a genealogy in this section of scripture we'll be studying today. And I know uh, genealogies probably aren't your favorite type of scripture. And I know you probably, and I probably can't pronounce half the names, but here's what, here's what I want to, to tell you. If you will hang with me today through this initial reading, that through the genealogy, through my mispronunciation, we're gonna learn some really, really awesome things for our lives. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm super excited uh, about what God has for us from scripture. So let's do it like a Band-Aid. Let's just go ahead and rip it off. Let's go ahead and read through this section of scripture. Uh, I, I'm not mocking scripture, but I, I think God understands that there are just some parts that are less immediately interesting to us, but let's try to, to, to read through this. And I, I'm telling you, there is so much good stuff here. Um, I, I'm just really excited about what God is gonna do. So. Let's begin in, in verse nine. I've got it up on the screen. You can look in your Bible if you have one turned there to Genesis chapter six, verse nine. It says, Moses thus spoke to the people of Israel, but they did not, li but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now we're about to go into the genealogy, so hang with me. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uzil, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. I hope you guys are writing these names down, right? For your prospective baby names. This is good stuff. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took it as, as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzil, Mishael, Elzaphan, Sithri, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abisaph, 
These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar's son Aaron, sorry, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putil, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out of the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Let's pray. Father God, as, as pastor of this church, I am truly excited to show your people wondrous things from your word. Now, God, some of our brains may have turned off just now as we listed names, and I pray that you would reconnect our brains, reconnect our minds to engage with you, to engage with your word and to engage with what you have for us today. Because God, I, I truly believe that if we'll listen to your word, if we'll learn what you have for us, it will make such a massive difference in our lives. But God, the power has to come from you. So I ask that you would do it by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. I know I didn't uh, follow along with the slides very well. Sorry. <laughs> I have some very good news for you uh, today, and it, it'll come from this text, and I'm super excited about it, and I'm hoping that it will make you uh, very excited. See, I, I think all of us tend to wrongly err uh, with one of two personality types. I think some of us are unconfident, paralyzingly so. We, we, we don't uh, believe in ourselves. You know, we doubt ourselves. We wonder if we have enough abilities and skills. We wonder if we're worthy. So we tend to be very hesitant about doing anything for God, especially if it's risky at all. But on the other hand, you have the very self-confident person they have no doubt about whether or not they can accomplish tasks. I say they, we. <laughs> they believe in their abilities. They believe in their skills. They believe in their worthiness. And so the, the, the self-confident person tends to be very bold about doing risky things for God. So while the unconfident is paralyzed and does nothing, the self-confident will do lots of things, but there's a problem with it, okay? Okay. Because they are self-confident, they are relying on themselves, and it often has bad results. Can I get an amen from any self-confident, bold people here that it often has bad results when we, we go into something and we, we use the wrong words in the wrong attitude and the wrong outcome occurs. Why? Because we were self-confident, me, what I could do. All of us, I, I believe to, to one degree or another, Air on one side or the other of this, being paralyzed by our unconfidence, our lack of confidence, or doing things with self-confidence and having bad results. And by the way, if there are good results, it ends up not even being that good because 
If you're self-confident, you take the glory. I take the glory because I did it, right? And it ends up not actually being all that glorifying to God because we robbed him of glory. And so there is a problem with these two personality types or two attitudes. You say, I thought this was good news. Okay, well, here's the good news. Moses erred in both of these ways, depending on what hour you ran into him, it seems like. What verse in the Bible you're reading, he erred on both of these sides. And here's the, the, the big exciting thing. God still used him in incredible, magnificent ways. But just, just to remind you, Moses in these last few chapters has been like a pendulum swinging between lack of confidence, self-doubt, timidity, paralyzed. I, I won't go, I can't go. And this self-confidence. Chapters three and four, you remember, is the burning bush. And God says, I am the Lord. I'm going to uh, release Israel from their bondage and I'm sending you to do it. And Moses just starts to list all the reasons he can't do it. Finally, he goes down to, to, back down to Egypt and he does come to the people of Israel and they listen to him and they're gonna follow him. And this is a great victory. And so what does Moses do? By the time we get to chapter five, Moses is this self-confident, bold man, walks boldly into Pharaoh's presence saying, let my people go, Pharaoh. And it doesn't go well. He doesn't actually do what God told him to do because he's coming in with this self-confidence. Remember, we compared that he added words to what God said and he did it in an attitude that God did not say to do it. And he even took away things that God said to say and things went very badly. Pharaoh rejected his demands. Pharaoh made things worse for Israel and Israel now turned their back on Moses. So what does Moses do? <laughs> By the time we get to chapter six, Moses has swung all the way back to this tim timid, paralyzed lack of confidence. Israel won't listen to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips, Moses says. So again, this, I'm not commending Moses for these things. I'm not commending us for these things. I am simply pointing out that God will still use Moses in incredible ways in spite of these flawed things that he was doing. And so my whole point of this entire sermon is this. If God could use Moses, he can use you. I have zero reservation saying that. If God could use Moses all those years ago with all his uh, issues, God can use you. But I want to show you that from the text today because I, I think it, I mean, that, that's what God's doing here. So I want to show you that. The first thing that, that I believe God wants us to learn from this text is number one, God doesn't need extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. It is my suspicion that most of you feel very ordinary. I do. I feel incredibly ordinary. Like just all the times I walk into a room and forget why I went there. And you know, just all the little things I do. I'm just like, man, I am just incredibly ordinary. God could never use me. What I want to show you is that this genealogy right here in Exodus chapter six is to show you that God doesn't need extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. There, there's no necessity that we be extraordinary. And what this does is 
It takes the unconfident person who says, well, I lack the skills, I lack the abilities, I'm a nobody. And it says, who cares? And this takes the person who is self-confident. I have all the skills, I have all the abilities, I can do all this. And it says, who cares? God doesn't need you to be extraordinary. He is extraordinary. And so he can do extraordinary things through you no matter what. That's what we're gonna see through this genealogy. I have, it's a big number. I have six reasons why I believe this genealogy is here, right there in breaking up the flow of the narrative to show that God doesn't need extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. So I'm gonna, I'll be quick through these, but six reasons that that's why this genealogy is here. First, this is been, has been the overarching theme of chapters three through five. Again, from, from the beginning of, of the burning bush narrative, we have seen a God who, who's trying to convince Moses just to, to do what he's asking him to do. And Moses keeps saying, ah, it can't be me, it can't be me. And then, then, uh, then Moses swings to the other side, right? Okay, I got this. No, no, Moses, you, you, Moses, don't got this. So he swings back to the other side. And so it makes sense that if chapters three through five have been carrying this momentum, then that's what chapter six would be about as well. Moses feels unconfident to be used by God. The second reason I believe that that's the purpose of this genealogy is God is making sure we know who the true hero is. Chapter seven is about to be some fireworks. (laughs) Things are about to get really crazy And it's gonna look somewhat like Moses is the one who is doing these amazing things. And and, you know, Moses is gonna do these miracles in front of Pharaoh and Moses is going to call down plagues and Moses is going to part the Red Sea. I mean, some crazy stuff is about to happen. And what God wants to make sure, the reason there is an interruption in the narrative is God is stopping to say, hey, wait a second. I wanna make sure that when we get to the end of this story, you don't sit and think, Wow, look how amazing Moses was. What God wants us to do and what he's setting up before moving into this powerful section is we should stop and think, wow, look how amazing God was through Moses, through this unextraordinary man, Moses. That is what's being set up here. The third reason, this is, uh, I mean, just picking up momentum is the inclusio of unworthiness. An inclusio is a common literary device. We, we use this by the way, it's a, but it's a common literary or, or speaking device that helps us understand what's going on. And, and basically an inclusio is a repetition of words or a theme on both sides, both ends, the beginning and the end of a section. And they repeat the theme and it helps us to understand the content in between that those two bookends, that's what an inclusio is. And what we saw in, in Genesis chapter, or sorry, Exodus chapter six was that verse 12 and verse 30 sounded strangely similar. I, I've got these uh, up on the screen for you. Exodus six twelve. but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Verse 30, at the other end of the genealogy, but Moses said to the Lord, 
Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And so what that's doing is it's repeating these words and repeating this theme of Moses' feeling of unworthiness. Moses feeling like he can't be used by God. It's at the beginning of the genealogy and it's at the end of the genealogy and it's to help us understand the purpose for the genealogy. Okay, so we know this genealogy is going to teach us something about the unworthy, <clears throat> unworthiness of Moses by human standards. The next thing we see, fourth, is there's an incomplete genealogy given. It doesn't give you all the sons of Jacob, all 12 tribes. If you notice there uh, in verse 14, it, it just starts to list it starts to, to list the, the, the heads of their, these are the heads of their father's houses. So this is talking about of Jacob, their fathers. And then it only lists two brothers, Reuben and Simeon. Then it comes to Levi. Now Levi is Moses's direct descendant. Levi is, according to this genealogy, his great grandfather. Now there may be more people in this line, but it, it ties him directly to Levi. And and it's just so interesting that it bothers to give Levi's two older brothers, but then it doesn't give any of his younger brothers. It doesn't even give the younger brothers that were born of the same mother as Levi. Why is that? This is very strange as far as genealogies go for it to just stop, to, to start going through the list, but then just stop. This is very strange. So the question is, why doesn't it give the younger brothers? The point is this, God was was putting an exclamation point. He was highlighting birth order, okay? Birth order. I'm telling you, it's hard for us because culturally we don't do this. We we are uh, very opposed, rightly so, to playing favorites, to giving undue attention to one child over another. But in Moses' culture, and by the way, and still in many cultures today, the firstborn son was an extraordinary position to be in. See, it was the firstborn son who would receive a double inheritance uh, when the father passed away. It was the firstborn son who would become the new leader of the clan. And so it was the firstborn son who was given all the attention, not all, but given extra attention and extra training in order to be able to carry these extra responsibilities and this extraordinary task of of now being the new leader of the clan. And so you see there, even in verse 14, I think I, I put it there. Yeah, in verse 14, it's put in here explicitly. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Israel is Jacob, okay? His name was changed to Israel. The firstborn of Jacob is Reuben. It it bothered to tell us that. The point is not not actually saying, oh, look how neat it is that Reuben uh, was the firstborn. The point is that Levi is not the firstborn. Again, this is, it's hard because we don't even really have a, a contemporary parallel to this in, in our culture, uh, but he was just, it means Levi was a very ordinary son. Levi had very low expectations on him because he was not the firstborn of Israel. 
Now, the further we go through that genealogy, and I'm not going to read it all again, we learn this. Moses' family tree was filled with a lot of non-firstborn men. <laughs> As you go through, one thing becomes plain. By the way, the birth order is, is listed. You know, they list the firstborn, then the secondborn, then the thirdborn. We've already seen that Levi was the thirdborn, his maybe great-grandfather. His grandfather, Kohath, was the secondborn. His father was the firstborn. But then when we get to Moses again, we see that he was the secondborn. You have, um, he, he, his father took a wife, Amram took a wife, and they had Aaron and Moses. So Aaron was Moses' older brother. So Moses is an unimpressive man on an unimpressive family tree. He's an ordinary man on a very ordinary family tree. And this is what God is pointing out. These are the things that are highlighted in the text. And we have just one more evidence of this is the flip-flop of verses 26 and 27. Just in case we missed that Moses wasn't that prestigious firstborn, God makes sure we catch it in a sort of editorial note of verses 26 and 27 because the order is flip-flopped between verses 26 and 27. I have it up on the screen for you if you'd like. It says there, these, the, the, these are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. Now that's pretty blatant to have two listings of the same two people's names, the first one gives the correct birth order. You see it up there. Uh, these are the Aaron and Moses. But then in verse 27, this Moses and this Aaron. What, what's God doing here? Well, the, the whole purpose of what God's, God's doing here is he's saying, look, Moses is an absolutely ordinary absolutely unextraordinary man by everything that mattered in their culture. Again, this may not matter to us, but it mattered very much to them. If they were to measure themselves, how ordinary, extraordinary they were, Moses was incredibly ordinary. And it's saying even Moses in, in his own household was not the firstborn. That's the point of verse 26. But when it comes to serving God, Moses was going to come first. That's the point of verse 27. The big thing that God is trying to teach us through this genealogy is that God does not care that Moses was just an ordinary man. God doesn't care that everyone had low expectations of Moses, including Moses, right? God doesn't care about that. God is showing us that he's about to do these amazing things through Moses, but it isn't because Moses is amazing. Moses is absolutely ordinary by their culture, but God is going to do extraordinary things through him. Again, my suspicion is that you feel very ordinary. But here we see this Moses, ordinary upon ordinary upon ordinary by their cultural measures. You may use your cultural measure, our cultural measures, and you feel very ordinary, and God is gonna use him in extraordinary ways. This should absolutely remove 
any reason that we have of this paralyzing lack of confidence. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. God is not asking for your resume before sending you to do amazing things. He's not. And this should absolutely remove our sinful self-confidence and self-reliance because it doesn't matter. God isn't going to use you more because you're more special, because you're more skilled, because you're more worthy. None of us are worthy before God. Any skills you have come from God. And anything that of, of true value, true worth is only accomplished by God, even if it's through you even if you feel very ordinary. And that's the point. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you just feel like a person, oh, I just go to my nine to five job. I come home. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a rich family, a middle-class family, a poor family. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you had tons of education or very little education. It doesn't matter if you've had lots of ministry training or if you've just attended Sunday school for the first time. It does not matter. God is not looking for resumes. God is looking for even the most ordinary of people to do extraordinary things through. This is a beautiful truth for me because again, I feel incredibly ordinary. But yet we see from this text that God can do extraordinary things through me and he can do extraordinary things through you. He really can. Now, at this point, you may say, being ordinary is actually not my biggest problem. My, my biggest problem in being used by God isn't that I'm too ordinary, it's that I'm too flawed. My biggest problem is that, yes, I've trusted in Christ, but I'm still too sinful. My biggest problem is that, yes, he, he's my savior and I believe he'll take me home one day, but I still struggle to trust him with my daily life. I struggle to trust that he can do things through me. That, I, I'm just flawed. There's no way God can use me. Maybe, maybe that's how you feel. Well, I've got another set of good news for you today. This is number two. God doesn't need flawless people to do fantastic things. God doesn't need flawless people to do fantastic things. Now, at just an overview uh, look of the Bible, at the overview of, of the church and all that God has accomplished, how many people could God have used if he could only use flawless people? How many people that have ever lived? One. <laughs> there has been one flawless human being ever and yes, God did use him, Jesus Christ, in amazing ways, in the greatest of ways. But we see that there are so many people God has used, that he's used in the past, that he's used you know, in, our, in our Bibles, that he's presently using. Each and every one of them flawed. And we see this with Moses in that inclusio. You remember the inclusio, the repeated theme? Verse 12 and verse 30 but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Exodus 30, uh, 6, yeah, 630. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. 
How will Pharaoh listen to me? So in, in the actual genealogy, God is pointing out how unextraordinary Moses is. But in the, the brackets of the inclusio, Moses is pointing out how flawed he is. By the way, he's pointing this out to God. Kind of ironic, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, as though God doesn't know Moses. But, you know, what, what's this talking about? This, I'm a man, or for I am of uncircumcised lips. Like, what, what does that mean, uncircumcised lips? Well, there, there are two possibilities for this, but I'll tell you, both have the same conclusion that Moses is flawed. The, the first possibility is that Moses is too sinful. Circumcision for the Israelites was a symbol of cutting away sin. I'm not going to go into to all the details of that, but it is a symbol of, of I'm letting go of my old man, my old nature, this cutting away of sin. And so the idea of uncircumcised lips is I, I no longer speak sinfully. And Moses is saying, I'm uncircumcised of lips. Moses feels sinful. And, and specifically, it may be that he feels sinful with his lips. Now, if you remember last week's sermon, Moses did not obey the exact words that God told him to say to Pharaoh. Maybe, maybe that's what he's pointing to. God, you told me what to say, and I didn't do it. I, I sinned with my mouth. I, I added words. I took away words. I, I, I had them with a different attitude. Of course, he did this through Aaron, but... Aaron was just repeating what he was saying. But maybe he's feeling guilt from that. I mean, this, is, this has just happened in, in his experience, you know. He's, he's feeling guilt, and now this has brought all this pain and hardship on Israel. Now Israel's turned their back on him. The, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Maybe he's feeling that guilt, that, that dirtiness, that flawed nature of his. Do you ever struggle with sin still, even though you've trusted Christ? <laughs> I mean, I, it's a rhetorical question because we all know the answer. Yes, I struggle with sin. I think the wrong things. I say the wrong things. I do the wrong things and I hate it. And have you ever had your sin, the guilt, the shame of it, make you feel unworthy, unfit to serve God? I'm a pastor. Every Sunday, I've got to get up here and preach God's word. And I don't know for the past five years, how many times I've stood there in my little spot saying, what am I even doing? Who am I to preach God's word to God's people, to be used by God's spirit, to transform... I'm so sinful. I'm so flawed. This week I've, I've messed up in this way and this way and this way. On the drive here, I messed up this way and this, you know. And I stand there repenting saying, God, don't punish your people because of your son who's so flawed. I mean, this happens to me, not, not every week, but I mean, pretty regular. Why? Because I'm a flawed guy. I'm still in process. And this, it's not just with preaching, by the way. That's just a, a very regular thing, um, you know, that every week I have to come and serve in this way. And, and there's just that responsibility, that weight. But this happens with, with trying to uh, share the gospel with other people. 
I, I may have just had a, a bad, a sinful week. You know, I'm, I'm fighting, but I'm, I feel like I'm losing. And then an unsafe family member comes in town. And then I end up hanging out with an unsafe friend. And it's like, okay, I so badly want this person to know the gospel, to trust in Jesus, to become a brother or a sister in Christ. I so badly want that, but I can't be the one to tell them. I'm so sinful. I mean, that has happened to me many times. That in that moment, here's what happens. I have to say, is it about me, my extraordinariness and my perfection, or is it about God? How extraordinary He is, how perfect He is, how powerful He is. And we have to make that decision. And I'm telling you, in my personal experience, I've walked away from some situations saying, God, you used the most broken, dirty vessel to do some really amazing work in there just now because I got to share the gospel. We got to engage. I could tell their heart was drawn in. And I came into that room as flawed as can be. God does not need flawless people to do fantastic things. Now hear me very clearly. I am not encouraging you to pursue mediocrity. I am not encouraging you to walk in sin. Absolutely not. Pursue uh, becoming all that you can for God. Pursue all the righteousness and holiness you can. Absolutely pursue those things. But what I'm telling you is, you're never gonna reach perfection this side of the grave or Christ's returning. And so if you're waiting for that day when you become someone super special or when you become perfect, you're never gonna do anything. You're never gonna do anything if you wait for that day. Pursue it, pursue it, pursue holiness, pursue greater faith in God, absolutely. But in the meantime, believe that, that God doesn't need extraordinary. God doesn't need flawless. He can use you just the way you are. Why? Because he's an awesome God. That's the point of Exodus chapter six. The second half is it's not about Moses. He's a flawed man. He's an unextraordinary man. And yet God in chapter seven is about to light that, that fireworks stack and things are about to get crazy through Moses. Now, there is one thing you will have to do to be used by God. There is one thing that if you don't do it, all your fears will be right, that you remain unextraordinary and that you remain with no fantastic things happening in your life. You have to obey God. God has given commands. Go therefore and make disciples. God has given commands. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. God has given commands and nothing fantastic will happen through our lives unless we obey him, unless we step out in faith, trusting that he will do what he says he will do. Sorry, I left that one out. Oh, what have I got there? Oh, there we go. Number three, obedience makes the difference. It's so interesting how many people I think that, that will live ordinary lives and have nothing extraordinary happen simply because they did not take God at his word. Now, what's interesting <clears throat> is I, I just said that, that Moses may have lacked faith. That's what that second slide was. Is Anyways, I won't worry about it. 
Moses may have not trusted that God could use his flawed mouth because he said in chapter four, uh, I don't speak well. Anyways, but obedience makes the difference. Nothing changes between chapter six and seven, okay? You have this inclusio, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. You have this genealogy, he's still a very ordinary man. But guess what happens when we get to chapter seven? I wanna show you these verses. And it's three times just in chapter seven alone. So I I take that to be very important. Chapter seven, verse six, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 20, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. Moses was still an ordinary, insignificant man. And Moses was still a flawed man, struggling with sin, lacking faith in God to, to be able to do what he says he can do. But what makes the difference is they do just as the Lord commanded. I I call this a mustard seed of faith. Actually, Jesus called it that. That that is, I I, I don't have much faith. I'm, I'm struggling here to trust you, God, that you can do this. I'm struggling to see how you could use me, but you know what? You've commanded me to do it. And so I'm gonna do it anyways, and I'm gonna leave the results to you. Jesus has given us great commands to do amazing things, to attempt amazing things. And he promises that he will be there with us. That was these verses two slides ago. There we go. This is the, the great commission. You know, we all know that, but you need to remember how it ends. Go therefore and make disciples. Okay, make, make followers of Jesus who, who make more followers of Jesus. Make disciples. Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then again, in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You ordinary Christian, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now the question is, are we going to obey? Obedience will make the difference. I'm not saying you, you earn God using you. I'm not saying you merit God using you because of your obedience. I'm simply saying, if you don't obey, God's not gonna be able to do the things through you. Now, later in the book of Exodus, I love this. Later in the book of Exodus, we see a man who slowly but surely, his faith builds some steam. By the time you get to the Red Sea, you have a man who speaks very calmly to Israel and says, what are you guys freaking out about? Like, we've got God, like, look at this, you know, cloud. This is God with us. Like, he is going to fight for us. Like, he will take care. You have this incredibly faithful man. But it took time. That did not happen without little steps of obedience. He he did all that the Lord commanded him. Then the Lord tells him another thing. He did all the Lord commanded him. And over and over again, he sees God come through. He sees God work powerfully. It builds his faith but it does not happen without obedience. So I don't know where you're at with all this. I don't know how much you lack self-esteem or if you're super proud 
and arrogant. I have no idea, but it doesn't matter. What God wants to do is take your eyes off of you and put them on him. I don't know how guilty, how sinful, how flawed you feel. And while yes, you should absolutely fight your sin, fight your flesh or you will die, but it's, it's not about you. It's not about your perfection. It's not about whether or not you're flawed. It's about the God who does perfect things through flawed people and he gets the glory because of it. But we gotta obey. And so during this time uh, of prayer and, and, and uh, reflection, I want you to ask God to do a couple of things. Ask God to help you believe that he can use you. And then I want you to say, God, where am I not obeying you? I mean, it could be with sin. It could be things that you're actually doing that you say, God, I know I've been holding on to the sin. I haven't been letting it go. And I need to do that. But God, I also see that you've given commands. I see that you've given great promises and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not obeying those commands. I'm not believing those promises. I mean, you can, you can be as specific as say, God, who do you want me to share the gospel with this week? <laughs> because I already know you've told me to share the gospel, to go and make disciples. You've already told me you'd, you'd be with me, that you'd empower me. I just wanna obey now. So let's take some time in prayer. I'll, I'll lead us uh, in a moment of prayer and we can ask God to help us do these things. Father God, we are so thankful that you use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Because God, we often feel so ins insignificant and ordinary. And God, we're even more thankful that you use flawed people to do fantastic things because God, if, if we're honest, we're all so very flawed we still continue to struggle with sin. We still continue to struggle to trust you. And yet you would be pleased to use us. Oh God, help us today to obey you with whatever mustard seed, whatever little bit of faith we have, help us to obey you and watch you work. And God, would you build our faith? Would you make us holy? But God, I know first you have to make us obedient. God, help us not to reject your call any longer. You're not gonna let Moses reject it here in Exodus. Please don't let us. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.